Good morning, everyone. Uh, it's already been said, but welcome for those who are uh, new here. Uh, my name is Rodney Holmes. I'm actually a member of the Prado slash uh, Adams community group. Um, and today I will be reading to you all from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloths, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to her, him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he has said these things to her. Church, I have read to you from John chapter 20, 1 through 18. May God bless the readers, hearers, and doers of his word. Thanks, brother. Hey, uh, happy Resurrection Day. The Lord Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is good news this morning, church. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, we've been in the Gospel of Mark we are going to do a slight deviation um, because Jesus has risen. Without the resurrection, without Easter Sunday, none of this other stuff matters. Christmas isn't important. Nothing else matters if the resurrection doesn't take place. And so today we've gathered to celebrate, as we do every Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the most important event ever in the history of the world. 
If you were to look throughout history, especially recent history, with each passing generation, you'll see one event that, oh my bad, Levi, I forgot your job. Hey, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Levi will bring you a Bible. I'm going to keep talking though, so throw up your hand if you need one. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's yours to keep. Okay, sorry, buddy. Uh, He was waiting patiently for me. Hey, there's one over here, bro. All right. Um, Yeah, if you're to look at recent history, with each passing generation, there is one event that ultimately shapes a generation. For my generation, it was most definitely 9-11. I bet all of you can tell me exactly where you were. If you were old enough, you can tell me exactly where you were, how old you were, and what you were doing when you heard that our nation had been attacked. I remember vividly watching the second plane fly around and smash into the, into the tower on live TV. And that changed so much for us as a nation. Pre-9-11, we had um, experiences like where we were experiencing just a few decades of, of peace as a country. And then immediately... Uh, As we are thrust into war, a bunch of my classmates went off to war. Um, It changed the way we travel. You used to be able to walk right up to the gate and greet your friends and family that were returning. Now you have to buy a ticket, take your shoes off, get the scan. It's a whole production. You got to put your shampoo in a little Ziploc baggie. For my parents, it was like the Kennedy assassination in Vietnam. For my grandparents, it was Pearl Harbor. For my kids, it's probably the Rona. I thought for sure it was going to be that a reality TV star was elected president because that was huge. But, but, even with all of these moments in history, eventually we just move on from them. Like we get used to the lasting consequences of these events and we grow desensitized to them. To my kids, 9-11 is just something that they read about in the history books. They do not know. They have never experienced the blessings of pre-9-11 air travel. There is, however, one event that has stood the test of time and has weathered many countless attempts to discredit it. It is the most important event in the history of the world, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. That is the reason we are gathered today, or any Sunday for that matter, because Jesus was dead and he's now alive and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. We are gathered today because Jesus did, in fact, get up out of that grave 2,000 years ago and walked out defeating sin and death on behalf of the church. Listen, Good Friday is only good because of Resurrection Sunday. If the resurrection does not occur, our whole reason for gathering is a complete waste. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, then we are liars testifying to something that didn't actually happen. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith, our life, our whole existence is futile. The resurrection is an audacious claim. Do you realize what is at stake for you if Jesus doesn't rise? Think about what is at stake for you if Jesus doesn't conquer sin and death for you. 
I want you to feel the weight of that, of what you say you believe, especially if you're one of those types that is just showing up because it's Easter Sunday. Do you realize what's at stake if Jesus doesn't rise from the grave? So we need to spend some time this morning doing two things. Our goal today is to see that, number one, the resurrection is actually factual. It did happen. And we need to know that because it did happen, then number two, the resurrection is transformative. Because the resurrection happened, it changes things. So in order to do these two things, we're going to be spending all of our time this morning in John chapter 20. We're going to walk through the whole chapter, so get ready. There are a lot of things that take place over the course of this first Easter Sunday. And I want to unpack as much of it as possible so we can see the risen Christ for who he truly is. But before we dive in, let's boldly approach the throne of grace and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds this morning. Will you go to the Lord with me? Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort where comfort is needed. Lord, ultimately, we need our hearts and minds centered on the fact that you did rise. And in that act, Lord, you've made heaven possible. You've made salvation possible. You have saved us. You have redeemed a people for yourself. So may we walk in confidence in the resurrected Lord Jesus this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we trust you. We pray that you would use this time for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So let's get a little context here. Again, it's Sunday morning, and our text says that it is still dark. Uh, It's still dark because it's early, yes, uh, but it's also just super spiritually dark. The followers of Jesus are still reeling from the fact that Jesus has just died. And not only has he just died, but he was very publicly and brutally executed. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of sadness. John says it was still dark. Remember, so many of these people have been following Jesus. They have left everything to follow them, follow him. They've left their homes. They've left their families. They've left their businesses. And they've been following this homeless rabbi around for a couple of years. And now he's dead. What are we supposed to do? So we see this woman, Mary Magdalene, and she's going to the tomb. And she notices, hey, the stone's gone. Hey, the guards are gone. But more importantly for her, Jesus' body is gone. They harassed Jesus all of his years of public ministry, and now in his death, they can't even leave him alone. That's probably what she's thinking. So she runs back to get Peter and John. They're the obvious leaders of the 12 disciples. And I'm not sure what she thinks they can do about it, but misery does indeed love company. 
So she goes and she gets Peter and John. Verse 3 says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, that'd be John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself." So Jesus' two closest disciples take off running towards the tomb, and they get there. John makes it a point to tell us that he beat Peter. Maybe he just wrote this down for posterity. I don't know. He beats Peter in this foot race. But he also makes it a point to tell us that Peter goes into the tomb first. Maybe Peter has more faith than I did in that moment. I don't know. He's not worried about, Peter's not worried about what he may encounter inside. He goes in to inspect the situation, and they notice that Jesus' burial clothes are left behind. There's one for the body over here in one place. There's one for the head folded up over here in another place. Let me ask you this. Anybody ever had their house or their car broken into We live in Odessa, so it is an ever-present reality that these things are absolutely possible. Uh, I think currently I'm averaging 1.5 car break-ins a year since we've moved here in 2012. Uh, Man, I can always tell when my car has been broken into, though. All of these would-be thieves have one thing in common. They leave my car a huge mess. (laughs) Glove box open, papers thrown about. Uh, consoles just left wide open. Um, Now, there are some people that would say Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but that his body was actually stolen. Let me submit this to you. If Jesus' body was indeed stolen, why would the robbers take the time to unwrap the body of Jesus and then fold the laundry? Would it not make sense that they'd want to get in and out as quickly as possible? One other thing to note here. This is the second time in John's gospel that burial clothes are mentioned. Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, uh, he was on his way where he'd be arrested and crucified. He makes a pit stop in a little community called Bethany. He's got friends, Mary, Martha, this guy named Lazarus who had died. And Jesus goes and brings Lazarus back to life. He calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus comes out still wrapped up in his burial clothes. This is symbolic. Jesus is saying, hey, Lazarus is going to need those again. Jesus, on the other hand, is leaving his burial shroud behind him. He has risen, and he will never, ever, ever need those burial clothes again. And seeing is believing for John and Peter. They see the clothes, and they believe. Verse 8 says, Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Christians, 
take some comfort here. Verse 8 says they saw and they believed. Verse 9 said they didn't completely understand yet. We live in such an instant gratification society. We want what we want when we want it. And if we don't get it, we discredit it or we move on from it or we complain about it. But these two disciples are a good example for us. They're now believing in what Jesus has been saying about himself. They're now believing that he is indeed the Son of God like he said he was, but their faith isn't perfected. There's a lot left yet that they still don't know and they still don't understand. Man, our, our faith is a journey. And as you grow in your faith, God is gracious to give us more and more and more understanding. Don't be discouraged when you struggle with it. It is a daily journey to grow and to understand and become more and more and more like Christ. But it starts with this moment. We have to believe in the cross to atone for our sins and the resurrection as the foundation for anything else. We have four different accounts in the Bible from four different men, from four different backgrounds, and four different professions, and they are all attesting to the validity of the resurrection. It did, in fact, happen. The disciples and Christ's early followers would go to death defending the resurrection. Let me ask you another question. Are you willing to die for something that you know isn't true? Are you willing to die for something you know to be a lie? I am firmly, firmly convinced that these early Christians, when faced with persecution and death, would have easily recanted to save their lives if they thought it was a lie. But they believed and they saw the resurrected Jesus and they could testify to the fact that Christ Jesus had risen from the dead. The Bible testifies that Jesus appeared to over 500 people as he rose. And the history of the spread of the early church showed us that these people saw and believed. The disciples, man, they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Bless you. And... We, the church, 2,000 years removed from this event, have the opportunity to defend the faith like our brothers and sisters in the first century. Josh Moody, one, he's, a, he's a professor at one of our seminaries, it says, like, says it like this. When we present the message of Jesus, we need to present it biblically. And that means presenting it as factual. Christianity is not mere philosophy while it is a worldview that is philosophically viable, it is not only philosophy. Our faith is not merely subjective. And while there are emotionally satisfying experiences for the disciple, the Christian faith is not mere, merely sentimentality uplifting like a drug or a piece of art. The Christian faith is nothing if Christ has not risen bodily, factually, actually from the dead. And the truth of the resurrection is based not upon exper uh, experimental methods of natural science, verifiable by a test tube or empirical data, nor arguments of logic. But it is based on history upon eyewitness accounts. 
the resurrection of Jesus is presented by John as something that happened. And for all our desires to present the resurrection as meaningful in the emotional sense, the meaning is only sustainable if it's rooted where John roots the story, in historical facts. The resurrection is factual. And because it's factual, it is transformational. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 11. But Mary, sweet Mary, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And when she saw, or and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Peter and John go back to their homes, left Mary in the garden. I guess chivalry was dead in that moment. Um, she still, though, Mary still hasn't come to terms with what is going on. She stoops down to look in the tomb, and she sees these angels, and she is completely unmoved somehow. She turns around and sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. I don't know why she doesn't recognize him. Maybe in her grief, in her mental state, her mind is playing tricks on her. But then Jesus speaks to her. Verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. The sight of Jesus fails to trigger faith. But then Jesus calls Mary by name, and it prompts her to see and believe what her eyes are really telling her. All four gospel accounts agree that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see the resurrected Jesus. And this is substantial for us for a number of reasons. Jesus reveals himself first to a woman. A woman during the first century in Judea did not have status to be an eyewitness in a court of law for anything. For God to determine that a woman should be the first eyewitness of the resurrection not only gives Mary great honor, but it also gives women a credibility that is unique and intrinsic to biblical Christian faith. And not only was it a woman, it was this woman specifically. When Jesus first meets Mary in the Gospels, they tell us that she was so mentally incapacitated and beyond the scope of saving. She was possessed by seven demons, and he cast them out. He healed her. She became a follower of Christ. So Jesus, in the sovereignty of God, reveals himself first to a woman and also to a woman with such a checkered past. And God uses her. God uses this woman as the first evangelist to the resurrection. Do not think for one second that you are beyond the scope of God's grace. None of us are beyond the saving grace of Christ. Do you believe that? This isn't a license for you to go out and do whatever you want. 
But you cannot out God's ability to forgive. So here's Mary, realizing that Jesus is risen, that he has appeared, and she just grabs onto him. Jesus said to her, get off me. Let me go. He says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God, your God. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. And then he said these things to her. Here we see the transformation beginning to take place. Mary's weeping has turned to joy. Her mourning has turned to joy. And her joy in Christ is leading her to worship and to adoration of who Jesus is. And with the proper view of Christ, she then is commissioned by Christ. He sends her to his disciples. But he doesn't call them disciples. This is the first time that he is calling his followers brothers. In other words, what we're seeing here is that believers in Jesus, um, our positions now are different. We're not just followers of Jesus any longer. We're a part of a family. The cross has now created access to the Father. The cross has opened up the throne room of heaven, so now Jesus' disciples His followers can have an intimate relationship with the Father through faith in the Son of God. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, because your debt has been paid in full, you now have a Father and everything that was due Jesus now belongs to you. Your sin, my sin, our sin, that creates a problem. God is holy just and perfect, and we are not. Because of that, we are separated from the Father. That is why Jesus had to come and die. The Bible calls this propitiation. Jesus Jesus is the substitute for us. But Jesus doesn't just pay for our sins. His death gives us a blessing that was reserved for him. His death made a way for you and I to be adopted by the Father. Propitiation leads to adoption. Now, because of the cross and the resurrection, we are co-heirs with Jesus. Jesus Christ is now our brother. There's something great happening here. When Christ defeated sin and death, you are not only given life, but you are given life abundantly. We are given a promise of an inheritance in Christ. We are given a promise of love. No matter, listen to me, no matter what kind of earthly father you have, your heavenly father loves you, and you now have a perfect father. His love for you doesn't ebb and flow based on his emotions. His affections for you aren't based upon your performance. He loves us enough to discipline us when we sin, but not because he's vindictive or wants to get even with you. He disciplines us because he wants what's best for us. We're promised acceptance. 
what the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus means is that God will accept us because what Christ has done for us. We are now children of God because of Christ's righteousness transferred to us. But none of this is possible without the resurrection. The resurrection transforms our position in God, and it transforms our purpose in God. When Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him, he's commissioning her to go. One commentator says the attitude that Jesus is encouraging in the disciples, including the women, is not one of passive amazement, but of active mission. They're not to cling on to him. They're to go and share him. Mary goes to the disciples and proclaims what she has seen and what she has heard from the resurrected King Jesus. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, same day, still Easter Sunday, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said, these, uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, are, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The same day Jesus shows up where the disciples are. And instead of rebuking them for their faithless fear from a few days ago, he pronounces peace upon them. What a sweet picture. Jesus is gentle even when we lack faith. So we have seen how the resurrection transforms weeping to joy. We have seen how the resurrection transforms enemies into sons and daughters. Now here amongst the fearful disciples, we are seeing the resurrection turn fear into peace. Listen, peace and joy are indicators of the presence of Jesus. If you're in Christ, Christian, above all else, above anybody else, we are to be people of peace and joy. Why? Because Jesus rose from the dead. Because Christ has risen. Our death has been defeated. We have nothing to fear because we're in Christ. And not only that, here's another, indication, uh, another indicator that the resurrection is transformative. Prior to this encounter with the resurrected Christ, the disciples were in fear of their lives, hiding behind locked doors and dimly lit houses. Now, when they encounter Jesus, they're willing to, to go. And as we see in the book of Acts, they're willing to go even to the point of prison and death to defend the resurrection. Fear, turn, uh, fear turns to peace, and fear also turns to boldness. The resurrection transforms things. And because of this, church, we are now commissioned to therefore go. Jesus tells his disciples that God sent him to us, so Jesus now sends us to others. We're going out not to save people, but to give people the message of a Savior. Christians are sent people, 
And we're sent with all authority because Jesus has bestowed all authority upon his disciples at the Great Commission. That message is the gospel. We are so utterly sinful and unable to self-save, but Christ, being rich in mercy, emptied himself and bore our penalty, which is death on a cross, and then he rose from the grave. The gospel of Christ is that because of the cross and resurrection, we can be forgiven. If someone can believe, if someone comes to believe in Christ, the church can now declare, your sins are forgiven. So we go as sent people. We're not sent of our own volition, we're not sent in our own strength, and we're not sent in our own power, but we are sent with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives his disciples in this upper room and which will be poured out in all the believing world on the day of Pentecost. There is one disciple missing from this event on this night, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't look at our boy Thomas. We're probably familiar with the term Doubting Thomas. Here's where it began. This poor guy. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I can relate to Thomas a lot here. I'm historically a guy that makes a lot of outlandish claims, uh, and then I get humbled and put in my place pretty quickly. Um, one time when I was in high school, I was supposed to like play guitar for this kids' event, and I didn't really want to do it anymore. Uh, I was expected to do something that I'd committed to, but I was trying to back out because I, I didn't want to do it. So as a tough guy, I was all like, I'll tell that lady, Miss Nelson, I'll tell her straight up, right to her face, I'm not doing her event anymore. And then I hear this sweet little voice behind me say, excuse me, what would you like to tell me? And I turned around and I said, yes, ma'am, what time do I need to be there? Oh my <laughs> That's Thomas in this moment. He's feeling a little let down. He's definitely skeptical about this Jesus guy. And when his friends are trying to convince him they've actually seen the risen Jesus, he doubles down on his skepticism. But Jesus is so gracious. And he answers Thomas's request. Jesus shows up a week later and gives Thomas a chance to see and to touch and to believe. Thomas, stop doubting me, Jesus says. Just believe, man. Thomas confesses the Christ, and therein lies the essence of salvation. I think Thomas's journey should both be an encouragement and a warning to you. If you're skeptical about Jesus, if you're a doubter about Jesus, 
you're in good company. It's hard to believe that anyone could actually rise from the dead, right? I think Thomas's statements and ultimately his interactions with Jesus invites us to diligently search out the truth. In this day and age where culture wants to paint truth as completely relative, uh, Jesus invites us to know him and know that his truth, his word, his resurrection are absolutely true. Man, so I'd invite you skeptics and doubters out there, give Jesus a chance to answer your doubts. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Jesus graciously shows Thomas himself, and he's still the same God today as he was back then. Ultimately, though, we must confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. We must confess Christ as the Son of God and believe in the resurrection. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Thomas confesses Christ and commits his life to serving Jesus. You can't have one without the other. Salvation is both confessional and committal. This is more than religious utterances and saying prayers and doing stuff. This is radical life change. When Christ redeems your life, everything changes. Your thoughts, your actions, your motives are impacted. Impacted. This is more than religion and showing up to church once or twice a year on Easter Sunday. This is more than giving and serving. Merely saying the sinner's prayer does not make you saved. And the Christian walk is more than religious utterances. It's more than saying prayers and doing. We can do all of that stuff from a place of disbelief. Jackie Hill Perry says God is not interested in us doing stuff for the sake of doing stuff. Belief in Christ changes everything from the inside out. Once you've been called into a relationship with Jesus, guess what? You get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you ought to want to know him and follow him and serve him. If you think you're a Christian and your life looks no different than it did before. You may think you're saved, and you may not be. But when we submit to Jesus' lordship for our lives, we begin to see just how sinful we are. And when we submit to Jesus' lordship, we will begin to understand just how loved and wanted we are. What we see in the Apostle Thomas is confession and repentance. Thomas is turning from his sin and his unbelief and declaring Jesus as his master. John in verse 30 here says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The resurrection changes everything. You either accept it or you don't. By accepting it, there's life for you. Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that he 
In him there's life. He came to give you life and life abundantly. He came to give you life to the fullest. And that is the life that is on offer for you this morning. That is the life that is in God, enjoying his presence, enjoying his blessings, enjoying his kindness and his goodness and his nearness and his empowering to achieve his purposes. The opposite of that is death. You can deny and reject these and the resurrection as well. But there's a promise there too. The promise is eternal separation from God and his blessings in hell. Christ is offering you something better. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in him today. Christ is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we have a resurrected Savior. Lord, thank you that in you, death has been defeated. Lord, that the curse of sin has no claim on our lives for those of us that are in Christ. Lord, thank you for defeating the curse of sin on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would move in these next few moments, Lord. I pray that you would use these moments for your honor and glory. Lord, I pray that you would continue to be in our midst. Lord, that you would continue to dwell with us. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.